True crime, unsolved cases, strange disappearances. Join me as we travel through the timeline of some of the darkest acts in human history. I'm your host, Kevin Eustace, and welcome to the first season of The Deadly Countdown. Episode 9, Fred and Rose West, The Final Chapter. Rosemary West, on trial at Winchester, accused of ten murders, today became the first witness called in her own defence. Her counsel told the court she knew nothing about and took no part in any of the killings. Shown photographs of some of the victims, she said she'd never seen any of them. That was the voice of BBC News presenter Peter Sissons describing Rose West's appearance in court. Fred was notable by his absence, and that will be explained during this show. But one thing we know from our first two episodes is the statement made by Rose about not knowing any of the victims is a complete lie. I'm Kevin Eustace, and welcome back to The Deadly Countdown. On today's penultimate episode of Season 1 of The Deadly Countdown, we conclude our look at two of the most heinous serial killers the UK has ever seen. Once again, this episode is not for the faint of heart, and this episode also highlights how the justice system can let people down. Not only that, you will feel almost bewildered at how the justice system can have these people almost within their grasp and legally have to let them go. But before we dive into the final chapter of Fred and Rose West, I need to give a quick shout-out to our newest team members over on Patreon. When you sign up to Patreon, not only will you receive these episodes both ad-free and before everyone else, but you can also gain access to the Patreon-only podcast, Cold Case. Every fortnight on Cold Case, we take a look at some of the most famous unsolved cases that have stumped detectives throughout history. We already have covered the D.B. Cooper case and the Black Dahlia case. So, with our three-week break coming up at the end of Season 1, now is the perfect time to sign up to our Patreon and gain access to those extra episodes. We are building a truly wonderful community of like-minded true crime enthusiasts over at Patreon, and we'd like to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash the deadly countdown. And right now is a perfect time to jump in and become one of our founding members, just like our wonderful new team members have. So a huge crime club welcome to David Turner, Sean Henches, Kristin719, Roger Slightum, Mandy R, Stephen T and Therapy Angel. Thank you so much for supporting the show, guys. It really means the world. And I sincerely hope you enjoy all the early ad-free content of course, including early access to the debut of Season 2, the season finale of Season 1, and of course, the Patreon-only Cold Case episodes. 
So if you enjoy the show and you'd like to treat yourself to an early Christmas gift, head over to patreon.com forward slash the deadly countdown. But right now, it's time to draw down the curtain on two of the most evil people to walk this green and pleasant land. For Fred and Rose West, let's start the deadly countdown. As we established at the end of last week's show, Detective Constable Savage's eventual fight for a search warrant to excavate the West Garden was authorised in February 1994. But let's take an initial step back and study how, by that point in 1994, the police and the Wests had already developed an interest in each other for the previous few years. In May 1992, Fred asked Louise, his 13-year-old daughter, to take some bottles to a room located on the first floor of their residence. Sometime later, Louise was discovered in agony, weeping uncontrollably. Due to the fact her father, Fred, had raped, sodomized and at one point partially strangled her. In the weeks that followed, Louise was the victim of three additional assaults. Rose witnessed one of these incidents firsthand, but never intervened, and then accompanied her daughter into the restroom, where she observed her in distress and bleeding heavily, and then asked the child, well, what did you expect? Apparently, Fred even filmed one of these assaults. After a number of weeks passed, Louise disclosed the incident to a close friend, whose mother, quite rightly, notified the police in an anonymous manner. The police, therefore, acting on the anonymous tip-off, conducted a search of the West residence on August the 6th, 1992. This was under the guise of locating stolen property. Despite the discovery of numerous items of sexual paraphernalia, the police were unable to locate the one item they truly wanted. The video that allegedly portrayed the rape of Fred's daughter. Despite this, a specially trained attorney obtained a detailed statement from the 13-year-old girl, in which she detailed her father's actions, the commencement of the sexual abuse when she was 11, and her mother's apathetic disregard for her plight. The subsequent day, every child residing in the household was placed into foster care. Physical and sexual abuse were confirmed through medical examinations of each child. A comprehensive police investigation ultimately resulted in Fred being charged with three counts of rape and one of buggery in collaboration with Rose. In addition, Rose herself faced charges of child maltreatment, obstructing law enforcement and encouraging her spouse to partake in sexual activity with their daughter. 
Whilst Fred awaited trial, Anna Marie contacted the authorities in order to provide a detailed account of her childhood experiences. She detailed the severe physical, mental and sexual abuse that she had been subjected to, both by her father and stepmother. May was also interviewed by police and social services. At the beginning, she denied experiencing any form of molestation during her adolescence. Subsequently, in an effort to verify Anna Marie's allegations of sexual abuse, the police directed their efforts towards locating Heather. However, despite conducting inquiries with the Inland Revenue and the Social Security Department, no records were located. None that could provide confirmation that she still existed. Additionally, Gloucester Social Services contacted the police to express their concern regarding Heather's whereabouts. The case against the Wests was unbelievably unsuccessful, as on June the 7th, 1993, the child rape victim Louise, 13, and Anna Marie both declined to testify. The victim expressed her desire to return to her family, and Anna Marie decided to retract her statement. After considering the potential suffering this may cause her younger siblings, and her apprehension regarding Rose's vengeance against her. Although the Wests were found not guilty of all charges, thankfully their children stayed in foster care, though they did have authorised visits to Cromwell Street. Although the Wests maintained all charges were falsehoods concocted by the police, the vast majority of any of their surviving relatives severed all ties with them. Heather's disappearance remained under investigation, and the police made a remark that there were no records indicating her continued existence. Anna Marie claims that upon hearing her father recite this claim from the police, he burst into laughter which caused Anna Marie to start disregarding the gravity of the situation, believing it maybe was all just fabrication. But the police were like a dog with a bone, and upon investigating Fred's past, law enforcement officials discovered that despite the fact that Rena and Charmaine had vanished in 1971, no report of their disappearance had ever been filed. DC Savage and her team held firm to the belief that Heather had been murdered and that Fred's recurring jokes to his children that she was buried under the patio would eventually be verified. And so Gloucester Police obtained a search warrant on February the 23rd, 1994 which authorised a thorough search of 25 Cromwell Street in an effort to locate Heather's remains. On February the 24th, when authorities arrived at the residence, initially refusing entry to the officers until the warrant was explained to her, 
Rose became hysterical and yelled to her eldest son, Stephen, get Fred, over her shoulder. But when Fred arrived, he was the picture of calm, all smiles. He joined Rose, who was stood, arms folded, with a face of thunder in the garden, while she looked on at the officers preparing to dig. Fred leant in and whispered in her ear, something which must have been along the lines of, play it cool. And so Rose did, and the pair took a seat on a pine bench, the one Fred had placed above Heather's corpse. Fred, maintaining his blasé act, even offered the police, who were now beginning to dig up the lawn, a cup of tea, claiming things like, you're just wasting your time, I can't believe you're listening to little kids, shaking his head, maintaining his smile and his calm demeanour. But as the search began to close in on the areas that Fred knew only too well contained the mutilated corpses of his victims, Fred's mask began to slip, and he abruptly altered his strategy, no longer sitting but stood behind the police as they worked. No more smiles. Asserting the police harboured a personal vendetta against him due to his daughter's rape allegations and his subsequent acquittal in 1993. The police returned to Cromwell Street shortly thereafter to resume their search for Heather. And although no body had been found... Enough evidence had been uncovered for Fred to be apprehended and formally cautioned. Surprisingly, he expressed his desire to be detained and transported to the Bealand police station. In the back of his mind, clearly aware of what was about to be uncovered, he promised the officers he would provide a complete confession once at the station for the murder of of his daughter, Heather West. At 11.15 that very morning, Fred admitted formally to the police that he had, in fact, murdered his daughter, albeit in the capacity of manslaughter. He admitted suffocating Heather and dismembering her corpse in the restroom on the ground floor allegedly in a fit of fury, using a hefty serrated knife typically used to carve slabs of frozen meat. Following this surprising confession, he then offered to take the officers back to Cromwell Street and show them the exact location where Heather's remains could be found. The police initiated excavations of the garden on February the 26th, in a small section at Cromwell Street where Fred claimed to have interred the remains of his daughter. A human thigh bone was discovered protruding from a section of the garden shortly after 4pm. As investigators excavated the garden section where Fred claimed Heather was, they uncovered a tangled mass of human remains. Entwined with two lengths of rope, and encapsulated in the remnants of a garbage bag. 
Upon further examination at the police headquarters, it was ascertained that the dismembered remains did indeed belong to a young woman, albeit a woman lacking a patella and a number of fingers. Fred was accused formally with the murder of his daughter and questioned regarding the discovery of a third thigh bone. He then stated he'd killed and buried another woman and consented to revisit Cromwell Street in order to disclose the whereabouts of this burial. This would be Shirley Robinson, who he characterised to police as a lesbian former tenant, despite being heavily pregnant with his child at the time of her 1978 murder. Two days after the discovery of the remains on February the 28th, Fred was now accused of both homicides. Fred, whilst in custody, authorised his solicitor to send a note to Superintendent John Bennett of the Gloucestershire Police, confessing to an additional nine murders, including Charmaine, Rena, Linda Goff, and others who remained unidentified. As police began a more intensive search of 25 Cromwell Street, as you can imagine, a media frenzy erupted. Fred disclosed that five of the corpses were interred beneath his dungeon, and a sixth was entombed beneath the toilet on the ground floor. The majority of these victims, according to Fred, were hitchhikers or young women, people he'd abducted from bus stops and murdered in the 70s. At first, Fred asserted he transported the still-alive bodies of these six victims to Cromwell Street, where he subjected them to torture, dismemberment and inadequate burials, after they had supposedly threatened to expose his adultery to Rose. The authorities discovered six additional corpses of young women at 25 Cromwell Street between March the 5th and March the 8th. Every single victim had undergone severe mutilation, and there were indications that each body had been through severe sexual torture prior to their murder. Within a third group of remains was found a substantial serrated knife and a small skull shape measuring 16 inches in circumference, bound with adhesive tape and a length of textile material encircling the cranium. Yet more remains uncovered a U-shaped section of tubing beside the victim's amputations and her cranium was also encased in adhesive tape. Fred and Rose West were jointly accused with five counts of homicide by May the 6th. In response to each formal charge, Rose consistently stated, I am innocent. Although he'd always denied homicide, Fred admitted to the homicides of his first wife and stepdaughter, as well as to possessing knowledge of the whereabouts of Anne McFall's remains. As the body count rose, Fred and Rose West were each accused of 12 homicides, 
and Fred was detained on remand at HM Prison, Birmingham. It was here Fred's apparent depression worsened in the wake of the media's depiction of Rose, which in his mind led to Rose's public rejection. Then there was Rose's unresponsiveness to the correspondence he sent her, and press leaks containing statements which contradicted her denial of guilt for the murder, and her animosity towards him. Although Rose never acknowledged these overtures, Fred appealed with Stephen and Anna Marie, the only children permitted to visit their father whilst on detention, to convey to Rose that he loved her. But nothing was ever reciprocated. As a reaction, Fred recanted his previous statements of acting alone in the homicides and placed nearly complete blame on Rose for all of the murders he'd been accused of, with the exception of Anne McFall's murder, which he claimed had been carried out by his first wife. Following a relaxation of the initially stringent suicide watch that Fred was on, Fred committed suicide in his cell on January the 1st, 1995. To do so, he made a rope from a stolen prison laundry bag tag and blanket and wrapped it around his neck, fastened it to a door handle and window catchment, and then collapsed to his knees. The suicide note, discovered at the base of his cell, contained a drawing of a gravestone with, in loving memory, Fred West. Rose West, rest in peace, where no shadow falls. In perfect peace, he waits for Rose, his wife. Rose entered a not-guilty plea in February during pre-trial proceedings on ten counts of murder, which included the fatality of Charmaine West, as well as two counts of rape and indecent assault against juvenile females. On October the 3rd, 1995, her trial commenced at Winchester Crown Court, where she was tried in the presence of Mr Justice Mantell. Prosecutor Brian Leveson characterised the Wests as depraved murderers preoccupied with sex, as evidenced by the discovery of bodies at both Cromwell Street and Midland Road, which contained, and I quote, secrets more horrifying than words can express. It was noted that Fred was in prison at the time of Charmaine West's murder, and he asserted that the Wests had all come to terms with their error in permitting Caroline Owens to live. Rose's defence in the murder case was predicated on her alleged promiscuity and authoritarian demeanour. Rose, in her testimony, stated she was not informed of Fred's sadistic tendencies and urged the jurors not to be prejudiced by her bossy demeanour or promiscuity. Rose stated that she and Fred had led separate lives, although that was in direct opposition to the account of earlier witnesses who had lodged or visited the residence. Although she acknowledged having a tense relationship with their eldest child, Heather, she maintained her affection for her daughter and denied any involvement in her murder. 
Additionally, the defence summoned a series of women, who all testified that they were subjected to attacks or assaults by an unidentified male whose physical attributes matched those of Fred West during the period of 1966 to 1975. Each of these women testified that they identified their assailant as Fred West in 1994 when his photograph surfaced in the media. Arguably, Fred's suicide was one of the best things that could have happened to Rose's defence team. In their minds, they had an unarguable case to paint Fred as the main person involved in each and every crime. Not only did Rose deny knowing any of the murder victims, she also stated she was never allowed into the basement. The slight issue with her statements were there were several witnesses who had seen her behaviour. They may not, for example, have seen her murder anyone, but they did, for example, see her force her child to stand naked on a chair while she beat her with a wooden spoon. It also seems like a very foolish move to claim you lived a separate life to your husband when you basically ran a hostel, and countless independent witnesses could state otherwise. Before Fred killed himself, he designated Janet Leach as his final witness, as his appropriate adult, to testify at Rose's trial. As per Leach's testimony, Fred had progressively developed a close relationship with her, and she disclosed that he'd confided in her that he and Rose agreed the evening before his arrest on February the 25th, that he would bear complete accountability for the murders. He had specifically referred to a number of them as some of Rose's mistakes. He had additionally disclosed that Rose, during his incarceration, had indeed been responsible for the homicide of both Charmaine and Shirley Robinson. Fred additionally disclosed his involvement in the dismemberment of the victims. And Rose had taken part in the dismemberment and mutilation of Shirley Robinson, with it being Rose who viciously removed the expectant child of Robinson viciously from her womb before she died. Leach admitted to Richard Ferguson during cross-examination that she had previously provided false information under oath regarding the sale of her story to a national newspaper for £100,000. However, she maintained an unequivocal commitment to the veracity of her testimony. Six days after the trial was postponed, she reappeared on November the 13th to conclude her cross-examination. Following an examination of all of the evidence for a period of seven weeks, the jury unanimously found the defendants guilty of all ten homicides. Rose received a life sentence with the stipulation that she would never be eligible for parole. She was initially housed as a Category A inmate at HMP Bronzefield, Subsequently, she was transferred to HMP Prison Low Newton, 
And finally, in 2019, she was transferred to HM Prison New Hall in West Yorkshire after allegedly receiving death threats from fellow prisoners, something which has never been confirmed. She remains at New Hall Prison today, age 70, and still, despite everything, maintains her innocence. I strongly doubt we'll ever truly know the number of people murdered by Fred and Rose West. Even as recently as 2021, the cafe formerly owned by Fred West was excavated in the belief more bodies would be found. However, no remains were found. For me, one of the most, if not the most, frightening thing about the whole scenario regarding the Wests are those people who went missing and nobody filed a report to say this person has disappeared from the face of the earth. We like to tell ourselves to reassure ourselves that everybody matters to somebody. But sadly for the people involved in this case, it's not always correct. Let's wrap up this Fred and Rose case with a very sobering statistic. In the UK... Every 90 seconds, someone is reported as missing. That equates to around 170,000 people every year. But they are reported as being missing. How many go unreported? Thank you all for joining me on this horrific journey through the last three episodes covering the lives and crimes of Fred and Rose West. But we're not done yet. We still have our season finale to come. And next week, well, I'll let the news people do their thing. Terry, the horrible truth to suburban contractor John Gacy's rambling statements to police last week is becoming more and more evident with each passing day. Six more bodies unearthed from the basement crawl space of Gacy's Norwood Park Township home today, bringing to 15 the number found there since Friday. That was a clip from WLS-TV Eyewitness News, covering the one and only infamous John Wayne Gacy. And that's who we shall take a deep dive into next week for our season finale. Until then, thank you for listening, and don't forget... If you want to get those for not... Until then, thank you so much for listening and bear... Until then, thank you for listening and don't forget if you'd like to get these episodes early and ad-free along with a Patreon-only podcast, head over to patreon.com forward slash The Deadly Countdown. All audio clips used today are covered under fair use and the links to which can be found in the show notes below. But right now... And I genuinely take a sigh of relief when I say this. It's time to finally stop the clock on Fred and Rose West. (laughs) 